This is the Horse Radio Network. Hello, and welcome to the Sport Horse Podcast. I'm Nicole Lakin. And I'm Tim Warden. And we're excited to share this episode with you today. On today's episode, we're going to hear from Dr. Sheila Schills, who is a biomechanist and a rider. Um, And because of that, she brings a really unique perspective to her work. Um, She's done a ton of really great research that we'll learn about, um, focusing a lot on the biomechanics of injury and rehabilitation of injury. Um, And on another note, I've actually gotten the experience to observe and work a little bit with Sheila. Um, She's a really like awesome, unique spirit. um, And she was able to give me um, perspective and guidance that honestly, like I, I, it was so specific and coming from such a different perspective. a different view um, and and a different understanding of the horse's body and how everything works together, um, that it really helped me work through some challenges I was having with a horse that was um, fairly sound from a clinical perspective, but had um, some conformational asymmetries that made it a little harder for him to do his job. Um, and the transformation was really pretty amazing. And as somebody who really enjoys the process of working with horses, it was just truly a really eye-opening experience. And um, I was so lucky to have learned from her firsthand. Um, so really looking forward to sharing this conversation with you guys today. So Dr. Sheila Schills, uh, she has an education that includes a PhD in biomechanics and a master's in equine nutrition. So she for sure has a broad, broad um appreciation of the science of uh, horses and sport. She was a professor of equine science at the University of Wisconsin River Falls, where she taught for 20 years. Currently, Sheila works in a private practice in the field of equine physical rehabilitation, where she specializes in the use of functional electrical stimulation. And she also presents on these topics nationally and internationally frequently. Her research and clinical focus is on how human biomechanics and rehabilitation techniques can be applicable to the advancement of the science of equine rehabilitation. Hi, Sheila, and welcome to the Sport Horse Podcast. Hi, Tim. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. A few years ago, you spoke at the AAEP meeting and gave a really nice overview of the biomechanics of injury. To kick off this podcast, can you provide some definitions for injuries in sport horses? So, for example, maybe acute versus chronic injuries or in tissue overload. So some terms that we should know in order to better understand the science behind injury and rehabilitation. Sure. Acute and chronic are some terms that are um, very common in veterinary medicine. But um, basically, in the barn, an acute injury is something that just happened, and a chronic injury is something that has been occurring over time. So an acute injury would be like your horse is out in the paddock and gets kicked by another horse. You actually can see it happen. The horse is sound one moment, and three seconds later, because of the kick, the horse is unsound. A chronic injury, things will go bad typically much more slowly. When you look back on a chronic injury, you're going to see that the horse slowly got worse and worse and worse. And many times people will say, well, it was just one bad step on that day. And all of a sudden my horse was lame. 
But with the chronic injury, if you go back and you review videos, you'll see that that problem was occurring slowly over time. And then tissue overload, again, is something that can happen with one bad step. For example, they step in a gopher hole. And so then as they step in that gopher hole, the leg is going to twist. There's going to be immense um, forces on that tissue that's not biomechanically correct, and the horse can be injured. So again, tissue overload can have an acute. It happens in a very short period of time. But again, more commonly tissue overload happens chronically as um, a long period of time progresses. So those are the basic categories of, of injury. Thank you. That's really helpful to give us all a little bit of context for this conversation today. So you work primarily with jumpers and dressage horses. Can you share with us what issues you're commonly treating in these types of equine athletes? This is a very good question. And I think sometimes it's easy to always say, oh, the horse is an individual. I can't really tell you exactly what one particular horse is going to have. But I think that we really need to answer those questions that you just asked. I think we need to look back over time and especially people who have uh, a lot of case studies, a lot of time under their belt where they've seen multiple horses um, in different um, uh, disciplines over time. Excellent, excellent question. And I would say when you pin me to the wall like that with your very good question is that in jumpers, basically I'm going to look at the pelvic region and see that the majority of them have problems in what we call extension in letting that loin area get longer. For instance, the position that's necessary for those jumpers to clear large oxers. That to me is an area that is very common in jumper horses to have dysfunction. While in dressage horses, that same area behind the saddle in the lumbar region or the loin region has more problems with flexion, where it would be the hindquarters tucking underneath. I sometimes say it, it looks like the horse in flexion is wanting to sit back on their tail. While in extension, they want to lift their tail up or flag it. So typically, a jumper will have problems in extension in the pelvis region, a dressage horse will have problems in flexion. In the thorax region, which is right under the saddle from the withers back to the start of the lumbars, both types of horses have problems with lifting that thoracic region up or what we would call a dorsal lift. They tend to want to allow that thoracic region to drop into a, a very soft sway back position. And this is so common in every type of horse is that you don't have that lifting. And there's multiple reasons. We could spend the whole hour talking just about how to get a horse to lift in the thorax. But that region is not set up mechanically and confirmationally to have the ability to lift. So it's something that the horses have to really learn to do through proper training with um, uh, the riding techniques that, that we utilize. And then if we look at the neck of the horse, I would say at the base of the neck, 
that's where I seem to find more problems with my jumpers. And I think what happens is sometimes when those jumpers, especially when they're trying to get over the high fences, rather than lifting their shoulders, keeping an arch in their neck to be able to get over the fences, they lift their head up they drop their shoulders and their neck goes down and they strain the base of the neck at that point as they're trying to push off and get up over the fence. So again, then what happens as a result of that lowering of the neck is that we get the dropping of the thorax. Well, in dressage horses, I find that I have more problems in the higher neck from the uh, pole to about a third of the way down the neck. And those horses are having to keep their their necks in um, a very steady, stabilized position with an arch and trying to support that heavy head at the end of that long lever arm of the neck. There can be a lot of strain then more in the upper neck. So again, every horse is an individual. We can't have a cookbook, but guess what? We can have recipes. And these are some really good recipes. They're places to start. And I always use these as a, as a beginning point when I go to um, work with a client. That's really interesting. And the, the one thing that really struck out about uh, your response there, Sheila, is that sort of everything you flagged was more, I guess, proximal, so closer to the, the center of the body, and you didn't get too much into distal issues. Like, is that another way of saying, like, a lot of the things that you're finding in these horses, they tend to originate sort of towards the core of the horse and, and through the neck, and then it translate this, translates distally? Like, would that be a fair statement? Very excellent. Another excellent question, Tim, is remember, my focus is the spine. So distal limb is more um, something that is going to be uh, a primary focus of a veterinarian. Well, when you have a rehab specialist of my background in kinesiology and biomechanics, my focus is going to be the spine. So that's how I developed the answer to the question. But the reason I decided to spend my professional life focusing on biomechanics in the spine is because I feel that the distal limb is a result of the biomechanics of the spine more times than not. Of course, you can have a conformational abnormality, but I always say it's kind of like you have a, a coat, a heavy winter coat and you put it on a hanger and the hanger breaks. No matter how much you try to straighten those sleeves to get it level, no matter how much you try to straighten those shoulders, the coat's never gonna hang off of a broken hanger symmetrically. So if you don't have that hanger correct, you'll never have anything that hangs off of it symmetrical. So that hanger is of course the spine. So that's the way I always look at my clients is the first thing I see in them is the spine. From there, then I trickle down. Now, as a, as a counter to that, I will tell you that foot contact to the ground always has to be primary. So now that I've said I focus on the spine, I'm going to go back and I'm going to backtrack and I'm going to say, but... 
if you're going to make me order biomechanics, the first thing I'm going to look at is how does that foot contact the ground? And this comes from, right from human athletes. If that foot doesn't hit the ground properly, then there's nothing else that we can do to improve the movement pattern. So our farrier and the way that they work the foot so that the contact of the foot with the ground is correct is of primary importance. Then what you do is you jump up to the spine and then you trickle down from there. So you start at the foot, the way it hits the ground, then you look at the spine and then you connect dots from those two points. That's really, really fascinating. I, I was just thinking it would really be awesome if you could explain a little bit about how you evaluate a horse that you're seeing for the first time so that you can get uh, a, a good overview of all of these factors that you described. Maybe there's some some tips that somebody who doesn't have as, as much training and doesn't fully understand biomechanics and all the physics and everything, but a little bit of a, of an overview for a layman about your sort of initial evaluation of a horse that um, somebody like me or one of our listeners could maybe take to heart and, and try and integrate into their, their barns. Sure. That's fun. All right. So let's say that I've been asked to see a horse for the first time. My, my preference is, is that the horse is left in the stall. And I walk into the barn, meet the client. And then as we're talking, I try to go over to the stall without any focus being on the horse whatsoever and just look in the stall. I look to see how the horse is standing. I look to see what the bedding looks like. I look to see where the food is. Is the hay in a net? Is it on the ground? Um, is there um, any signs of disturbance of the bedding that's unusual? I had one horse this past winter that would, you, you'd walk in the stall and there was no bedding other than in the left far corner. <laughs> so, you know, those are all signs. I, I watch to see how they're standing. Do they have, you know, typically just more weight on the front end? Are they always resting a foot? Then we take them out, we stand them, you introduce yourself, you scratch the horse, you just get a feel of their sensory perception. So you touch the horse because, you know, a lot of times you'll touch a horse and they'll just jump from just touching them. There's so much that you can learn just by that initial hands-on. So I just touch them. I don't palpate them. I just pet them just and talk to them just as you would introduce yourself into a, a new group at a party. So um, then we walk the horses, walk them up and down, watch how they go. No big news. Everybody does that. But I watch to see how their foot contacts the ground. So this is a beautiful tie in to the last question. And one of the keys that I'm always looking for is, are they what I call four square? Do they put equal weight on all four limbs? And again, remember, my background comes from human mechanics. All my training was in human biomechanics and kinesiology. So we would always do a movement eval. And what really led me to the understanding that evaluating horse movement was possible and influencing horse movement to make it better was possible is because one of my advisors was um, specialized in the biomechanics of toddlers. So she showed us videos how when the toddler held 
the right hand of their parent, they walked in one way. And when they held the left hand of their parent, they walked in another way. And simply by holding different hands of the child, the movement pattern was different. So that's what I start to do is I watch this horse walk up and walk back. Sometimes I'll have the handler change sides, watch the horse move. And the first thing that I look for is actually um, uh, the medial limb placement. So I look to see whether when the horse is walking away from me, do the hind hooves step up into the prints of the front feet on the same side? So does the right hind step up into the print of the right front? Does the left hind step up into the print of the left uh, front? Now, remember, horses conformationally are wider in their hindquarters than they are in their shoulders, almost always. Now, there are a few exceptions to that, but conformationally, they're wider. So you're always going to have a slight inward angulation to be able to have the hind hoof step into the print of the front foot because the shoulders are typically narrow. But if that hind hoof steps too far to the inside of the front foot, this is the first thing that I go, aha, why is the horse doing that? Well, let's think about it. If I'm going to take this horse and I'm going to turn it into a human and have it stand on only two legs, if you're going to stand on only one of those two legs, what do you have to do with that foot to be able to stand on it individually? You must bring that foot all the way to your center of gravity, which is your belt buckle or your belly button. So you have to swing it medially or you swing your body medially so that your foot, your single foot lines up with your uh, belt buckle or your belly button. So when a horse is medially placing a limb, if you look at pure physics, what they're telling you is that's their preferential limb for weight bear. And everybody has a preferential limb. You do, you're right-handed or you're left-handed. It's not necessary, necessarily pathological unless some other things are present. So you watch that and you say, okay, if this horse is walking away, and interestingly, most horses have preferential weight bear of the right hind. So I've never done, and this is just anecdotal, so don't, you know, chop my head off, but um, there. In, in my experience, the majority of horses medially place the right hind. And one of these days, we are going to have to do a study of that, do a, 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 a huge study to see if we can um, really make that determination of handedness in the horse based on preferential uh, weight bear. And so... If that horse is, is stepping too far to the inside with the right hind, then I go, ah, so does that mean that they don't want to put weight on the left hind or is it something that's just a habit or is it because the hips are crooked? So the hip is tipped too low on the right, which swings the right hind typically too far underneath their body. So that's what I look for initially is preferential um, weight bear of a limb. The next thing that I look for is I look for stride length is I want to be able to see whether both hind legs are striding out with the same length of stride and the same thing with the front feet. From that point, then we get on the horse, we ride them. And that's when it becomes much more complicated because then it's going to require a, a lot longer conversation um, where I talk to you about 
all the series of steps that I go through as I watch this horse under saddle. And then many times I actually sit on the horse also because it gives me a whole nother evaluation because one thing that I've probably done a lot of more than many people is I've ridden a lot of lame horses. So it's helped me to be able to sometimes feel lameness that may be a little harder to diagnose just visually. Because there'll be times where I get on a horse and I turn to the rider and I go, oh my gosh, my right lumbar is so sore because this horse is twisting me so badly. And the rider goes, yeah, I know. I've never ridden a horse that makes my back so sore. And we never talked about that because the horse looks beautiful under saddle. And then all of a sudden, ah, now I understand why he's moving the way he's moving and all these compensatories. So, so in, in kind of a quick nutshell, that's basically the way that, that I, I look at the horses. I try to, first of all, to just get a sense of who they are. And then I get a sense of um, how they, they feel to my touch and then I get a sense of how they move um, just on their own with no influence and then how they move under the rider's influence. That's really great. Thank you. I, I can also say that I've had the privilege of watching you work and, and working with you. And it's um, truly a, an amazing experience that I've, I don't think I've ever learned more in a, in, you know, a, a 30 minute, 45 minute session in working with the single horse, it's, it's really incredible how much you can learn both about yourself as a rider and about the horse in your talk, um, at, at the AAEP, which hopefully we can link to some of your really great diagrams and to your research paper. So people can go and, and get a deeper dive into your research on injury and rehabilitation of injury. You've done such a nice job of explaining asymmetrical medial limb placement, but you wrote and talked about it um, as one of the more common causes of injury in horses. Can you explain that a little bit more and how, while sometimes medial limb placement can just be, um, uh, just help you realize, you know, which, which side the horse prefers um, and which side they wait more versus when it, when it becomes the cause of an injury. Excellent. And, and this is really important to emphasize because again, in these conversations, you, you try to get to the point quickly, but sometimes these concepts are so complex. You leave out parts because you're trying to be a little bit more efficient and not overwhelm the listener with too many details. So just because the limb is excessively medially placed does not mean that it will injure or it has been injured. It's an indicator. It could mean that it has been injured. It could mean that it will be injured, but it's an indicator. It's one of those aha moments that you go, I need to dig a little bit deeper. So this is tapping me on the shoulder going, you need to pay attention to me. I'm a movement pattern that needs some attention. And what it really truly means is going to take time to decipher. But the point is, is that horse at that moment in time is preferentially, and let's use the right hind because we started with this, is preferentially placing that right hind too far under their body and not wanting to put as much weight on the left hind. So it almost even looks like this. Once I point it out to you, people will say, aha, I, now I kind of have a, have a 
words to explain what I was thinking is the horse will take the right hind and will place it under their body strongly, will step firmly and decisively on that right hind. And then the left hind will sometimes just kind of drag along like it's got a, a concrete block on it and is dragging through water. And many times that right hind is, is so far under the body that the left hind actually hikes outward so it can clear the right hind and find the ground. Because if the right hind is so far under the body and the left hind tries to swing forward, the right hind's in the way. So then you get this hiking and this lifting of the hip. So when this happens, there's a couple of things that we'll quickly go through. I think, okay, why are they doing that? Well, it could simply be that the horse is extremely hand one-sided and certain people are, they can do absolutely nothing with their left hand. Other people are a little bit more ambidextrous, you know, they can kind of sign their name with their left hand as well as their right hand. And the horse that is super preferential limb on the right side is probably that one that the left hind has just done nothing. And they've gotten away with that because their exercise level wasn't that hard. They may not be jumping that high. They may not be doing Piaf yet. But once that exercise level starts to increase, or in a human, maybe they're, uh, you know, they've hammered a few nails, built a dog house, but now they've decided they're going to be a carpenter and they can't hammer a nail at all with their left hand and they use their right hand for one week, pretty soon their hands in, in a cast because they, they, broke their carpals because they're, they're overused this hand so much where they didn't really notice it was a problem until they really, really, really started to use it. So when you see that strong asymmetry, that particular horse may not be having a problem at the time, but as the workload increases, the chances of something that strongly asymmetrical continuing to be uh, biomechanically sound, it decreases. So you you so you want to listen to this preferential weight bear issue, and you you want to say it could lead to something else. Now, the other thing that could be happening is long ago the horse injured the left hind. The left hind hurts. Therefore, they don't want to put weight bear on it. Therefore, their preferential limb bear on the right hind. And usually when that occurs and you try to get those horses to step onto the left hind, that's when they get mad and they go, uh-uh, I don't want to do it. It really hurts. So then you go, oh, now that was interesting information too, because if you ask a horse, for example, you know, to, to do a leg yield to the right, bring that left hind weight under their body to go to the right. And they're like, mm -mm, I'd rather half pass right than leg yield right. You're going, whoa, that's really strange. That's pretty abnormal. Um, and, and when it becomes super important to me is when I watch the horses go through a figure eight pattern. When the, they're going through a tight circle, the inside hind limb um, almost always has a slight more medial placement just because the horse tips in a little bit on a tight circle. Naturally, it's the physics of, of that um, tighter circle at slow speed because there's these centripetal forces that pull in all right on a small circle. 
uh, centrifugal forces, the, the circle has to be really fast. And that's when it pushes out. But the horse isn't going that fast. <laughs> they're, they're, they're trotting the circle. So they're pulling in. So what they do then is that inside hind limb goes under their body. So if then I watch them and let's use the right hind, let's stick with that one as our preferential limb um, uh, weight bear. And they're going on a right circle and that right hind leg goes underneath them. I go, okay, well, interesting. And then I watch them do the figure eight and they turn left and that right hind still stays medially placed as preferential weight bear. Then I go, aha, this is significant in my world because that is abnormal. They are overcoming the, the natural physics of a turn. And they're saying, I do not want to put my left hind underneath my body, even when I'm on a small turn leaning into the left. Then I go, mm, now this, this is significant. That's really interesting. And I think raised some really good points there. And it, it's interesting to, to hear you speak. So a lot of it comes back to the importance of having a good understanding of what movement should look like. Moving on. So you have a detailed list of conclusions at the end of the uh, AAEP uh, paper that Nicole was talking about. Uh, and there's some really good helpful tips for anyone wanting to learn more about your research. And we'll include a link to that in the show notes. Um, one of the goals of this podcast is to help equestrians link science to horsemanship and everyday practice. Can you recommend any tools or resources for equestrians who want to apply the science-backed principles from your work to their own programs in order to prevent injuries and to develop effective rehabilitation protocols? I do. And, and one of my recommendations is don't be afraid of PubMed. PubMed Dot com is where you can find some of the newest research articles that are out there. Scientific literature has changed over the years. And I remember when I wrote my dissertation, the thing my advisor said, which was pretty radical at the time, she said, anybody who is not in your field should be able to read your dissertation and understand it. And it used to be that you were smart when you threw together a whole string of big words and nobody understood what you said because you're so smart that nobody could understand what you said. Now times they are changing. The smartest person is the person who can take the most complex concept and bring it down to the point that anybody can understand. And I think that is following through and people are taking this to heart because when you read the scientific literature now, you don't have to be afraid of the big words. Maybe you need to look up one or two, you know, just like we started this conversation, what's acute and what's chronic. Once you get some of these terms down, dorsal, ventral, medial, lateral, we'll use those words. Once you get those figured out, the scientific literature is going to give you such good information. You don't have to have somebody interpret it for you. You can go to the literature firsthand and then look at five, six, seven articles. And you say, oh my gosh, I don't have time to do that. Well, you know what? You're going through Facebook. You're looking through other people's interpretation. Go to the primary source and spend your time looking at several different articles 
and just read the abstract, read the highlights, and you'll be able to gain so much information and you'll, you won't want to put it down. It'll be fascinating. I mean, every time I start to do some research uh, review, I get lost. And two hours later, I'm kind of like, oh, shoot, I'm so far away from what I, what I Googled first because it leads me to this and leads me to that. It, look at the scientific literature firsthand. That would be my suggestion. Don't wait for somebody else to interpret it for you because it's very easy to read, honestly, honestly. So that would be the first place that I would go to look for more current information about what's out there. Sheila, it sounds like your time spent on PubMed is like my time spent on Instagram. (laughs) Sounds like you're a little more productive. (laughs) I'm not sure about that, but uh, those those two hour deep dives where you end up really far from where you started is uh, something I relate to a little too, a little too well. You've been so generous with your time today, and I know you're really busy. So we have just one more question um, that we'd like to ask all of our guests, sort of a fun one, just that if you could communicate something to a horse and know that they would understand you fully, what is one or two things that you'd really want a horse to know? I would like to tell them that we're a team and that, and, you know, I guess this goes back to when I taught at the university, the first day. Oh, this is good. Okay. The first day of my new group of students, I would say, okay, education is not a business model. You don't come into my office, ring the bell, and I run up and say, how may I serve you? Because education doesn't work that way. Education is a 50-50. You put in 50%, I put in 50%, we get 100. If I expect 60 out of you and I only put in 40, that's not fair. If you expect me to give 60 and you give 40, that ain't fair either. It's a 50-50. So that, I guess, is what I would like to say to my horses on the first day that I meet them is let's make this a team and you put in and I put in, and then we're going to be able to um, be 100% successful. That was awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing all of your awesome, interesting perspectives and all this great information. And we just really appreciate you taking the time. So that was a really, really interesting discussion with Sheila. As someone who's also coming from a biomechanics background, I I always love having these conversations and listening to the different perspectives that are out there. She's for sure more on the the rehabilitation side than I am, but I think it, it really drives home the point and the importance of looking at how the the skeleton moves, how the muscles are firing within the body and trying to figure out what that's telling you about the horse. And I think Sheila communicated that really nicely. I think one thing that I always kind of, you know, laugh a little bit about is, you know, there's always this hesitation in our sport when the, you know, the idea of science comes up and some people will sort of think, oh, like, you know, when I was going through school, I hated science or it really wasn't my thing, but I think just classic horsemanship and and knowing how the horse should move and a lot of the signs that we're looking for in terms like how the stall looks in the morning and how does the horse walk out of the stall. A lot of the stuff that Sheila talked about is there's a lot of overlap with classical horsemanship and a lot of it is also rooted in biomechanics. And I really liked how she brought that all in. She encouraged our listeners, so everyone tuning in to not be afraid to go in and push the boundaries a little bit and to go on to PubMed, to go on to Google Scholar and to read a little bit about this stuff. So 
Uh, again, what a great episode. Sheila loves the topic, which is always uh, fun to talk to someone who's like that. But uh, yeah, just a great, great conversation. Yeah, I always enjoy um, getting to hear and learn from Sheila and and from anyone that has a sort of unique background, experience, and perspective. And I think you and I were having a conversation recently where we were talking about the fact that in this sport, but in everything, you just you have to keep learning. Like if you if you stop learning, then you know what's the point? You're done. You're not going to improve. You're not going to change. You're not going to get any better. And with that in mind, Sheila is actually one of our many really qualified, amazing contributors to the Equine Regenerative Summit brought to you by the Equine High Performance Sports Group this October. If you'd like to learn more about the summit, you can go to www.equineregenerativesummit.com. Sheila will be part of a panel speaking on Monday, October 24th, but we have speakers who will be presenting throughout the month of October from starting Monday, October 3rd and going all the way through Tuesday, October 25th. And all of those sessions will be live, but will also be available later on demand. So feel free to go check that out, sign up, come live to any of the days and sessions or um, check it out on demand later on. As always, you can find our show notes and information about today's speaker at www.sporthorsepodcast.com. Please follow us as well on Instagram at Sport Horse Series and on Facebook as well. We also really appreciate if you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps other people to find the Sport Horse Podcast as well. And you can have all 20 plus shows of the Horse Radio Network with you wherever you go with our free app for iPhone and Android. Go, just go to the App Store and search for Horse Radio Network. And as always, here's to keeping your sport horse happy and healthy.